All right, good morning, everybody. Man, it's, it's so good to see you this morning. When I, when I got up this morning, uh, my first thought, and this is bad, this is a little bit of confession uh, to you, my first thought this morning was, man, there's not going to be anybody at church today um, because, because they, they slaved away in the kitchen on Thursday, and then they shopped all day Friday, and then they watched football all day yesterday, and they won't have anything left for church. And, and my, my first thought was that, and, and how sad that could be. And thank you for, for proving me wrong. Uh, thank you that, that you, you are here and, and your being here is a testimony that this is important. That there's a lot else going on this time of year. A lot of other things that take our energy and our time and even our affection. But there is really only one thing. Only one who deserves our time and our energy and our affection and our worship and our praise. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And, and so we get together today. This is probably the most important day of this holiday weekend. We celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate salvation by grace through faith in Christ, and it's good, right? I, it thrills my soul to, to stand up here and see you all, and, uh, and I want to say thank you for being here today. I also want, before we get into the text this morning, to say thank you uh, to you guys. You've been so good to us over the last couple of weeks, to my family. Um, we, we want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, thank you to the church family as a whole for giving me some time off to be with my family and to, to celebrate Asher being here and, and things going really well. Thank you for giving us that time. We want to say thank you to everybody who brought stuff to the house. We have eaten like kings um, for, for the last uh, couple of weeks, and it's been fantastic. Thank you to everyone who, who expressed some kind of joy uh, in, in our lives this last couple of weeks. We have diapers galore and wipes galore and toys and, and blankets, and it's, it's incredible. And, uh, and we thank you for that. And, and we want to say uh, thank you to Joe and, and Brad for their service uh, in, in my absence. Uh, it's good to be able to step back and not worry about what goes on here. Uh, no, good to know that they're going to take uh, things and run with it, take the reins and do just fine. And uh, I'm thankful for all of that. Uh, it's been a blessing to us. And so I want to, I want to say at a boy, First Baptist Church, um, way to, way to go. Uh, you have really done well. In fact, it's interesting that that's going to be one of the themes of the text uh, today. Uh, as Paul talks about the way the church is supposed to relate to its ministers, to its leaders, um, you've done well. And I'm going to give you a lot of kudos, a lot of props. And so it's going to be a pretty positive day at First Baptist Church, right? You, you've done well. And, and we've been the recipient of that goodness and kindness. And we want to say uh, thank you to that. Do you have your Bibles this morning? All right, you need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's been a while, uh, a couple of weeks since we were in 1 Corinthians, so I want to spend some time reviewing, uh, catching us back up, getting us back on the track that we were on. Uh, last time we were in 1 Corinthians, we studied chapter 8. We looked at this kind of bizarre, or, or at least it's bizarre to us, this issue of whether or not to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. Uh, we saw Paul deal with this in a pretty revolutionary way. He doesn't lay down some kind of blanket yes or blanket no. He deals with people uh, where they are in different uh, places on the spectrum of Christian maturity, coming from different backgrounds. He wants them to think uh, critically about the issue. He wants them to think with love for each other about this issue, and he wants them to care for each other. It's really a, a gospel-centered answer to this question, this very practical question of, hey, should I eat this meat or not eat this meat? Uh, he gives really a gospel answer, and, and basically the answer is, well, what's going what's to do the most to promote the gospel? What's going to do the most to spread the good news of Jesus uh, to the world? What's going to do the most to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ? And that's the answer. It's not whether or not 
not you have liberty to do that. Paul's going to say that there are things that we have liberty to do that we can do, but maybe we shouldn't do for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul gave this really revolutionary and gospel-centered answer to that question, and it is fantastic. We talked about several things in chapter 8, several points of application. One of them was that knowledge is necessary, but it is not sufficient. He says there, there were a group of people, and he refers to them in some senses as the stronger brothers, who have a knowledge that is really helpful. It, it is a good knowledge. They know that there's only one God, right? Amen to that. Remember that? Amen to that. There's only one God. And, and that all of these idols, or so-called gods, are really not anything at all. And they have this knowledge which would give them freedom to then eat the meat that's been sacrificed to an idol because it's really not been sacrificed to anything because there's no such thing as an idol, right? And so he goes down this line of thinking and he talks about their knowledge, but then he says that knowledge shouldn't rule our lives, that we shouldn't live our lives just simply based on knowledge. We have to live our lives with love reigning over our lives. And he says knowledge is necessary, but it is not sufficient Love must reign in our lives. So when I deal with these issues of can I or can't I, it's really not the right question. The right question is, should I? What's going to be best for the people around me? What's going to be best for the spread of the gospel in my town, in my neighborhood? What's going to be best for the kingdom of God? And the question is really, should I, not can I? We also talked about the importance of voluntarily restricting very real freedoms in our own lives for the sake of other people. And we're going to continue on that theme this week in chapter 9. Paul is going to show that he's not just preaching something to people, he's practicing what he preaches. And he's going to apply this principle of voluntary restriction of our freedom for the good of the people around us into a different area of life. He's going to give an application to his own life in a way that he is voluntarily restricting his freedoms for the sake of other people. And it's pretty good stuff. And then we'll pick back up next week, well, really the week after that, with more talk about meat sacrificed to idols. So that's the issue at, at play in the Corinthians' lives, and Paul's going to apply the principles to more of life, which is what we need to do all the time, right? Because the reality is, none of you struggle with meat sacrificed to idols. Did any of you check to see if your turkey had been slaughtered in, in, a, in a pagan ritual to some false god? Was that on the label? You, you didn't check that out, did you? It's not, it's not that issue that we deal with on a regular basis, but there are a variety of these gray area issues, morally neutral issues, that we do deal with that we need to apply these principles to. So check it out today, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll get through verse 18 or so today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1 says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 
if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I've used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I, make, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as to make full use of my right in the gospel. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful uh, for so much today. For so many blessings in our lives. So many good things that you have done. So many gifts that you have given. We are thankful today simply because you are God on your throne. You're good. We are thankful most of all today for the good news of Jesus Christ. That you sent your son to take the punishment for us. Because of our sin. That he died as a substitute for us. That he bore our transgressions. That he bore our sins and he suffered the wrath, the death, the punishment that we deserve. And that he rose victorious over sin and death and hell. And that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, you bring us life and reconciliation to you. Forgiveness and cleansing by grace, through faith in Him. God, that is what we are thankful for this week and every week, that You would save sinners by Your grace. And God, we're thankful today for a local church that proclaims that gospel, that demonstrates that gospel, that loves each other and provides for each other. And God, we want to live for You. We thank You for freedom Freedom to worship here today, but more than that, freedom in Christ to live with boldness and with confidence. And we pray that you help us today to exercise that freedom responsibly and in love for our brothers and sisters. God, I pray that you will teach us to love better. To love like you love. Sacrificing self. And glorifying your, your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you'll see something that happens often in Paul's writings. It seems like over and over and over again, his apostleship is questioned by people who are opposing him, people who think he's not preaching the right gospel, or people who uh, simply just oppose the gospel because they are instruments of Satan. Uh, they, they will attack Paul and they'll say, oh, he, he's not a real apostle. He's not a real apostle like P- 
Peter or James or John or one of those guys who actually walked with Jesus and saw Jesus do all these things and were there for his uh, death and were witnesses to his resurrection. Uh, Paul's not a real apostle because he didn't experience all of those things. And so it's pretty pretty brilliant strategy uh, if you think about it, that if, if you're against Paul and you can take the legs out from under his apostolic authority, then you really take the legs out from under all of his authority and you render him useless to the church. And so there were people all the time that were trying to say, oh, Paul's, Paul's not really an apostle. And so what you'll see is he's constantly defending his apostleship. And he does it pretty well, right? Is Paul an apostle? Absolutely he is, right? He met the Lord Jesus and his life was forever changed. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus commissioned him, sent him specifically to the Gentiles to take the gospel to them and to change the world forever. And God did it through him, right? God did some incredible things through the Apostle Paul, did he not? And so Paul is going to, right off the bat in this text, defend his apostleship and in so doing apply this principle that we've seen when he talks about meat sacrificed to idols to life in general. And it's brilliant. He kills two birds with one stone and it's fantastic. Look what he says in the text in verses 1 and 2. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? All of these questions are, yeah, you have, yeah, you have, yeah, you are, yeah, you are free, yeah, you are an apostle, yeah, you have seen the Lord, yeah, you, we are your work in the Lord. And then verse 2, he does something pretty neat. He says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. And he's reminding them of the work that God did through him in their town. You know that part of the reason why there is a church in Corinth is because Paul came to Corinth and preached the gospel there, right? And so he's gently reminding them that they are the very evidence of his apostleship, that they are the very evidence of God's work in his life. He says, if others, if to other people, if other people on the outside say I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you guys. At least you are the very evidence of God's work in, in, in my life. He says, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And this is a little bit of a gentle but powerful reminder of what God has done in their lives through Paul. And he does this every once in a while too in his writings. He does this to Philemon. In Philemon, when he's talking about taking back Onesimus and uh, welcoming back this slave that had done him wrong, he says, listen, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. Paul says, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I'm good for it. And then what he does in the next verse is he says, oh, and don't forget that you owe me your very life. Don't, don't forget, don't forget, buddy, that you owe me your very life. I'll pay for whatever this, this runaway slave has cost you, but you don't forget that you owe me your very life. And he's talking there about spiritual life. A little gentle reminder that through Paul, God did amazing work in these people's lives. And so, in verses 1 and 2, Paul is defending his apostleship. He is reminding them of what God has done in their lives. And then what he's going to do is he's going to say, as an apostle... And as one who's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who's a servant of the church, there are certain rights that he has. Because of this position and because of the work that he does, there are certain rights that he has. And he's going to argue in the next few verses for the legitimacy of those rights. And then in the next chunk of verses, he's going to say, but I haven't taken advantage of that. I have voluntarily restricted those freedoms. I have voluntarily restricted those rights for the sake of the gospel, so that I would not be an impediment to the gospel. And so if you look at verses 3 to 7, you'll see these, these rights that he has as an apostle um, explained. Look at verse 3. It says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Does he have a right to eat and drink? Absolutely. And who's supposed to supply that eat and drink for the apostle Paul and other ministers? The church, right? The church is supposed to do that. When people come... 
and they serve you, when they give their lives for you, you provide for them because they're doing a good thing for you. And so he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Of course they have the right to eat and drink. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Evidently what was common was that these guys who traveled around and preached the gospel, these apostles, a lot of them were married. The norm was that they were married and they would bring their wives along. They would bring their wives along as support, as encouragement, as fellowship, as accountability as they were traveling about. They would bring their wives along and the church, the churches that they they were serving would provide not only for the minister, but for his wife as well. And that only makes good sense, right? That's the norm. The norm is that these ministers would travel around, churches would supply their needs, and they would also provide for their wife who was traveling with them. That's absolutely the norm. That's what's normal. Paul's not normal, evidently, but that's what is normal. And he says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing spouse? And then in verse 6 he says, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? All of these other apostles travel around and they don't work with their hands to provide for themselves. They depend on the church. Do only Barnabas and I not have a right to do that? And the argument that he's building is, no, Paul, you do have a right not to do that. You do have a right to expect the church to provide for you. You do have a right to depend on the church for your sustenance as you serve them. You do have that right. You and Barnabas are not in a class of your own. You're just like the rest of the apostles. You're just like the rest of the ministers. And you could depend on the church for these things. So what he's doing is he's building a defense of these rights that he has as an apostle. And in verse 7, he gives a couple of examples, a couple of very familiar examples of this. Look what he says. He says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Let me ask you this. If that's the way our military operated, how many soldiers would we have? If we said, listen, we need, we need some guys to go to Iraq and fight for us, We need some guys to go and risk their lives for us. And what they need to do is come up with their own uniform and their own weapon and their own ammunition and their own uh, travel and their own food and all of their own provisions while they go and fight for us. How many soldiers will we have? None. Well, we might have a few. We might have a few noble, noble guys who would be willing to do that, but we wouldn't have many. And it'd be ridiculous for us to expect that of a soldier, right? When someone is willing to give their lives for us, we're going to take care of them, right? And we should take care of them. In fact, maybe we should take care of them even better than we do, right? If we've got a group of people who are willing to lay down their lives for us, we should provide everything that they need as they do that. You see how there's a parallel there between the soldier and the preacher? The soldier and the minister, if there's a guy who's going to give his life in service to us, we need to take care of him. We shouldn't expect him to have to have a second job where he provides for his family through that. The church should take care of him. So he says, who who at any time would serve as a soldier at his own expense? That doesn't make any sense at all. The next example he uses is a vineyard planter. Look what he says. He says, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? That would be strange, right? A guy spends his whole year his whole year planting the grapes, tending the grapes, harvesting the grapes, making the wine, doing all of this stuff, and doesn't get his living from that? Would you do that? Hey, I want you to come work on my farm, and I want you to give your entire year working on my farm. I want you to plant the seed, I want you to tend the seed, I want you to harvest harvest the seed, and then I want you to sell the seed, but you're not going to get any of the benefit of it. How many of you would come work on my farm? If that's the wanted ad in the newspaper, how many of you circle that with your red pen and say, I'm calling that guy, that sounds like my kind of deal. 
It's crazy, right? If you're going to work on a farm like that, you're going to provide your own sustenance from that farm. You're going to, in other words, reap from the benefits of your labor. And that only makes sense. It makes sense in every area of life. If you're a soldier, if you're a soldier, you're taken care of by the people you're fighting for. If you're a farmer, you're taken care of by the farm that you're giving your life into. You, you, you draw your uh, provision from the very farm. And then he says... A third example, he says, or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now, this is a pretty interesting example because the shepherds who tended the flocks were pretty low on the totem pole of society. They, they were looked down upon, they were outcast, they were kind of dirty and smelly, and, and they were out all the time. They were ritually unclean when it came to Judaism and, and the rites of the, of the temple, and so they were just kind of outcasts. And he says, even these guys, when they are out in the wilderness and they're fighting off bears and they're fighting off wolves and they're fighting off all, uh, thieves who would come and steal, even these guys get to milk the goats every once in a while for their breakfast, right? Even these guys are provided for by the very goats that they're taking care of. You see the pattern here? And we could go on and on, and we could, we could come up with examples from our lives today. That this is normal. This is expected. This only makes sense. And what Paul is saying here is that that same pattern fits the church. That same pattern fits in the church. If there's a guy who's given his life in service to the church, the church should take care of them. If there's a guy who is, who is tending the seed, planting the seed and tending the seed and harvesting the seed, then, then he should reap provisions from that labor. If there's a guy who is, is giving himself in the wilderness and, and away from his family for the sake of the gospel, he should reap some benefit from that. He should be taken care of. His needs should be met by the people he's serving. Is that clear? Do we need to go on and elaborate? I realize that's a little bit self-serving. I realize I'm standing up here as one who is taken care of by the people he serves. And what I want to say to you is, you're doing good. You, you really are. You really are. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not preaching this message to say, oh, you need to pay us more. Oh, you need to give us more. I'm preaching this message to say, you're doing it. Way to go. You're fitting this biblical pattern. You take care of us who serve you, who give our lives in service to you. You do. You do a good job. And I think we all want to say, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. It's normal. It's expected. It's good, and it's right, and you're doing a good job. Attaboy, First Baptist Church, right? This is a good day. Aren't you glad you came today? Attaboy, attaboy. A lot of times I just rip on you for an hour. Tell you how bad you are and how you need to straighten it up. Today I'm saying, way to go. It's a good day. Good day to be at First Baptist. So in verses 3 uh, to 7, he lays out these rights that he has. And then in verse 8, he begins to describe them some more. And he gives some more defense of these rights. Look what he says at first. He says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Well, well, he just did, right? He just explained them according to human judgment. He said, soldiers and vine dressers and goat keepers. Uh, He uses very human judgment to defend these things. And what he's going to do now is he's going to say, it's not just that it makes sense. The reason why you should do this is not just that it makes sense or fits the pattern of the rest of your life. The reason why you should do this is because this is what God says to do. So there's a human judgment in this that would affirm what Paul is arguing, but there's also divine revelation that would affirm what Paul is talking about, and that's what he gets to next. And this is probably more important. More important than the picture of a farmer and a vineyard uh, grower and and, and those things. More important than that is what God says in his word. Look, Look what he says. He says, Or does not the law also say these things? Doesn't the law teach exactly what I'm telling you? He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is, he is threshing. And the picture here is this. When they would bring in the grain, 
when people in Old Testament times would bring in the grain from a harvest, they would put it on a, on a flat surface. And they would need to crush the, the grain that was there to separate the seeds from the weeds and the, and the chaff is what they call it. They would need to break the seeds out of their little shells so that the seeds were separated. And they used an ox a lot of times to do that. And the ox would just basically walk around on this floor and the, and the stuff that they had harvested was on the floor and he was crunching it and he was mashing it and he was separating the seed that they wanted from the bad stuff that they didn't want. And what God says in his word is he says, should you muzzle the ox while he's doing that? No, you shouldn't muzzle the ox while he's doing that because that ox is working for you. And how bad is it, how mean is it for you to say, all right, ox, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hang out in this little circle and I want you to walk on this grain, but you can't eat any of it. You, you got to do all this so that I can eat of it, but you can't eat of any of it. That's not fair to the ox, is it? No, we want to say, don't muzzle the ox. Let the ox eat some of the grain that he's working so hard to provide for you. He's walking around. And the question that he gives here, this is brilliant. He says, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then he says this, God's not concerned about an oxen, is he? God's not concerned about oxen, is he? What's the answer to that question? Yes, he is. He is concerned about the ox. He cares about the ox just like he cares about all of his creatures. He cares about the ox so much that he says, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Let him eat. He cares about all the creatures, doesn't he? He knows about the sparrow, right? When the sparrow dies, he knows about the sparrow. He knows about the birds of the air. And he provides for them, right? And they don't worry. And they don't put away. They don't store up in barns. But God provides for them. He provides even for the flowers, does he not? He gives them clothes that are more marvelous than the clothes that Solomon wore. Do you remember this talk? God cares about all of these creatures. And that's fantastic to us, is it not? We need to remember that, that there's not a creature on the planet that God doesn't care about. Even, even the little bitty insignificant ones in our mind, God cares about them, and he provides for them, and he loves them. And that is encouraging to us, because sometimes we look at our lives and we say we're worthless. We, we, say, we say, oh, we're worthless, we, we have no value at all, we are despised. It's not true. It's not true. Even the lesser things in the created order are taken care of and provided for by the Father. How much more are you? Because God does care about the ox, but the ox is not his son. The ox is not his child, and you are. The ox is not created in his image, but you are. And so how much more does he care about you? Is God concerned about the ox? Yes, and much more about you. So if he provides for the ox while he is working, how much more does he provide for you when you are working? That's the argument that Paul is making here. Even the scriptures say, take care of the ox. Surely the scripture means also to take care of the minister, to take care of the preacher, to take care of the servant. Look at how he develops the thought in the text. He says, it does not the law also say these things. For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written. For our sake this is written. He cares more about us than he does about the ox. For our sake it is written because the plowman ought to plow in hope. And the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. In other words, the one who serves should serve in hope that he will benefit from his service. The one who preaches should preach in hope that he will benefit from his preaching. Now, we've got to be real careful here because we're laying out a principle that could be easily abused, right? It could be easily abused where somebody starts preaching the gospel only for the sake of what they get from it, right? Paul talks about them in another place and he says, we're not going to get into the business of peddling the word of God. Not, we don't want to be in the business of preaching just for profit. But the church should take care of those who preach so that they will be free to preach all the more. 
all the more, to, be, to devote their lives all the more to the sake of the gospel and the sake of the Great Commission. So we need to be careful not to abuse this principle, but we need to recognize it as a biblical principle. He says, The plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Verse 11 and 12 are really the key to the principle he's arguing for. Look what he says. He says, If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Which is more important? Spiritual things or material things? Spiritual things, hands down, right? Spiritual things last forever, do they not? Spiritual things are eternal. And Paul's saying that what his work is, is a spiritual thing. We have sown spiritual things in you, eternal things in you. Things that last forever is what we're giving our lives for. That's what we're doing. He says, if we are doing that, is it too much if we expect material things from you? If we reap material things from you? No. That's a pretty good deal, right? Pretty good deal for the guy who receives eternal blessing to give temporary benefit to the one who brought the eternal blessing, right? This just got really awkward, didn't it? Like I felt it just then. Just then, it, it, it went from being, oh, this makes sense to, what's he getting at? Does he, does he want to raise? Is he looking for more? No. We're, we're, trying to, we're trying to explain the principle here. Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? No, that only makes sense. You give a lesser thing in return. Then he says this, if others share the right over you, do we not more? He says, when Peter came to town, you paid him. When Apollos came to town, you paid him. When these other ministers come to town who aren't even real preachers of the gospel, who are false preachers of the gospel, when they come to town, you take care of them. But yet when Paul comes to town, they don't. And what he's going to get to in a minute is you don't because I, I won't let you. But he says the principle is there, and the right of an apostle is to be provided for by the people he serves. That's the first part of this argument. It's just like it was last week. The first part of the argument is yes. The, the, you have a right to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Yes, you have a right to expect material things from the people you serve. And what the second part of his argument is the but part of the argument. Yes, you can, but maybe you shouldn't. Yes, I can expect that, Paul's going to say, but I voluntarily restricted that, that freedom, that, that uh, ability that I have for the sake of the gospel. So the first bit of this argument is about the right that he has as an apostle. And we don't need to miss it. We don't need to miss that he is saying that the norm is that the church would provide for its servants. And then in verse 12, part B, the game changes. And he begins to describe his use of that right or his lack of use of the right that he has. Look what he says. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Does that mean that he doesn't have the right? No, he's got the right. We've just argued that for a long time, right? But he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We have not demanded material things from you. We have not expected material things from you. Even though they could have, right? Even though Paul could have gone and said, no, you've got to take care of me. 
I'm not going to make tents anymore. I'm not going to work with leather anymore. I'm just going to preach, and you need to take care of me so that I can preach all the more. Paul says, I voluntarily restricted that right, restricted that freedom that I have, so that, look what he says, he says, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. That word hindrance is the word that it means to dig across. It's a picture of a road. It's a picture of a road that is a major supply route for an army. And if you want to hinder that army in their battle, what would you do? Tear up that road, right? If I can dig a big trench across that road where all of their supplies come from, then they can't get their supplies and they die. And he says, when the gospel is moving, I don't want to do anything that would hinder its movement. I don't want to do anything that would dig across the route in which the gospel is traveling. And so, in order not to be a hindrance to the gospel, I have voluntarily restricted my freedoms, restricted my right for you to provide for me, and I will make tents. I will make tents and I will work with leather with my hands and I will provide for myself. Does that make sense to you guys? That's the stance that Paul is taking. And we need to be very careful at this point, and this is going to get even more awkward, to not make this exceptional stance that Paul is making here the rule. He's argued about what the rule is, right? The norm is that the church would provide for its ministers. Paul is saying, I'm abnormal. I'm abnormal. I'm the exception to this rule so that there won't be any hindrance to the gospel. I have stepped aside voluntarily and said, don't pay me. I don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. Now, it's interesting in Paul's life that there are other times where he will gladly accept gifts from other churches. Other times when he writes, he will gladly accept benefit from other churches that he's serving. So Paul is not saying that this is the rule. He's just saying that in his case, at this point, the best thing he can do is to voluntarily restrict that freedom. All right, look at how it, how it uh, develops even further. He says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Back to the right again. He says, This is the way it works in the temple. In Judaism, the Levites, the Levites and the priests, they get their benefit from the temple. They eat meat that has been sacrificed at the temple. They have land because the temple has land. They are provided, to, provided for by the temple, and God set all of that up. And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So he gives this one brief snapshot where he says, Nevertheless, we haven't made ourselves available to that right. We've restricted it for the sake of the gospel. And then he goes right back to argue for the right again. He says, this is the way it works in the temple. People that work in the temple get their benefit from the temple. And this is what Jesus himself directed. And probably what he's making reference to there is Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus is talking about sending people out, sending his followers out to take the gospel to more people. And he says, the worker is worthy of his wages. He says, don't take, don't take extra sandals, don't take extra money, don't take extra food. The worker is worthy of his wages. It's probably what he's referring to here when he says, even Jesus directed this way. Even Jesus said, when you guys go preach the gospel, God's people are going to take care of you. Don't worry about taking extra stuff. They're going to take care of you, and you're worth it because you are serving them well, because you are sowing spiritual things in them and will reap material things from them. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so he... He gives us a snapshot of his voluntarily, vol- voluntary restriction of the freedom, and then he goes back to talk about the freedom. And then in verse 15, he gets right to the restriction. He says, But I have used none of these things, and I am not willing, I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. He says, Listen, I haven't taken any money from you. 
and I'm not telling you all this so that I can start taking money from you. Because there were people that would have said, oh yeah, Paul, you're just saying, you're just saying, oh, I don't mind. I don't mind doing it for free so that we'll feel bad for you and start paying you. He says, that's not my intention. My intention is not that this will start. My intention is to show you that this principle of voluntary restriction of our freedoms for the sake of others is a good thing. And it's something that I am involved in myself. He says, I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. This is a really neat verse in Greek. In the original language, it's as if he starts out in this emotional outburst at the end of verse 15. He says, it would be better for me to die. And then there's like this this immediate break where he kind of gathers himself and he says, I will not let anyone make my boast. I will not let anyone make my boast an empty one. And it's this real emotional thing where he he starts down a track and then he says, oh, I don't want to go all the way down that track. And then he says, I won't let anyone make my boast an empty one. He's saying, this is a big deal to me. This is a big deal to me. I would rather die. I'd rather die than for this boast of mine to be made empty. And then he begins to describe why he preaches the gospel and what his motivation for preaching the gospel is. And we'll draw a huge application from this. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Why does Paul preach the gospel? Because he gets rich preaching the gospel? Because life's so easy when you preach the gospel. Is that why Paul preaches the gospel? Because there's so much prestige in preaching the gospel. Is that why Paul preaches the gospel? No. None of those things are true. None of those things are true, especially not in Paul's day. No one was getting rich preaching the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And no one was getting prestige in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And life was not easy for the preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why, then, would you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because you have to. Because you have to. Because you've tasted of it, because you know the power that it has to change your life, and you want that power to be manifested in other people's lives, right? Has anything changed since Paul's day? No, that's still the reason why we preach the gospel, right? We don't preach the gospel so that we'll get rich, because nobody's getting rich preaching the real gospel. There's some people getting rich preaching false gospels, but nobody gets rich preaching the real gospel. And life is not easy for the gospel preacher, but we preach it because we have to. And why do we have to? Or do we do it? Do we do it with some kind of, oh, I don't want to do that. i got to get up and preach again Sunday morning. And oh, da, da, da. Is that the way you want your preacher to preach the gospel? No, you want your preacher to be ready and glad to preach the gospel. And look what he says at the end. Of it. He says, oh, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That word woe is heavy. My favorite urban theologian, Lecrae, says it this way. He says, Lord, kill me if I don't preach the gospel. That's the sense of, of that text. It is over. It is over if we don't preach the gospel. Man, I hope you feel that. I hope you've got some of that burning in your heart. It is over. My life is ruined if I don't preach the gospel. Let me tell you this. If you're a preacher of the gospel and you could do something else and be happy, you should do something else and be happy. If any of you young people are thinking about becoming a preacher or becoming a minister and you think, oh, I could be a banker, or a doctor, or a preacher. Be a banker or a doctor. You're not supposed to be a preacher. If there are other options in your life, take them. But if there is such a burn in your bones to preach the gospel that you could not be happy doing anything else, you go preach the gospel. You go preach the gospel because there's nothing else you can do. That's what it looks like. And that's what Paul is talking about. That's what Peter and John knew about. When, when they went before the rulers, they had seen this man who was uh, blind, right? 
blind or crippled, I can't remember what it was, and they, 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 he, was, he was healed, right? In Acts chapter 4, he was healed. And they get in all kinds of trouble for healing him. And they go before the rulers, and the rulers say, we can't keep you here, and we're not going to lock you up, but you cannot preach the gospel anymore. You remember what they say? Remember what Peter and John say? Uh, we're going to keep preaching the gospel. In fact, the very words they use are, we cannot stop preaching about what we have seen and heard. That's Paul's lot. That's the, that's the desire of his heart, and I hope it's the desire of your heart, and I want to make sure it's always the desire of my heart. Lord, kill me if I, if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm under compulsion to do this. And must. And must. Look what he says next. He says, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? This is the way it works. If this is the way it's set up, what is the reward? The reward is this, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says, my reward is simply the gospel preaching itself. My reward is simply seeing God work through the gospel. My reward is simply seeing Him change lives through the preaching of the gospel. And that's enough. Paul says, I don't want to hinder that in any way. And so, if, if my receiving a salary is a hindrance to that, I won't receive a salary anymore. Now again, this is the exception, not the rule, right? the exception, not the rule. And I hope that the application day is not, we're going to stop paying Chris. His family's going to starve to death because he's under compulsion. I am. I would probably preach the gospel somewhere else, though. <laughs> there are other places to preach the gospel. Anyway. He says, if my receiving a salary is a hindrance, is a cut in the road of the gospel, I won't do it anymore. Why? Because I care more about the gospel than I do about a salary. I care more about the gospel than I do about a salary. He is motivated, not only compelled because of the gospel, because of the work that has happened in his life, he is motivated by the gospel. What he does, he does for the gospel. Not just because of it, but for it, that others would know it. And he doesn't want to do anything that would be a hindrance to it. Paul's setting us a pretty good example here, isn't he? A pretty good example of a legitimate freedom that he could claim, that he could hang on to, that he could enforce. But instead of enforcing it, he voluntarily lets it go. Let's it go for the sake of the gospel. And that made his life hard. That made his life hard. Working with leather like he worked with was difficult work. It was hard manual labor. I read something uh, this week about how it would stain your hands. It would stain your hands, and everyone would know you were a leather worker, and leather workers were not prominent. They were low men on the totem pole. And yet he was willing to dedicate his days and his nights to doing that so that he could preach the gospel all the more. He's showing us that this voluntary restriction of our freedoms for the sake of others is a good thing, and he's involved in it. Why? Because he's motivated by the gospel. Three applications today, and then we're done. Number one, church, provide for your ministers. If there are people who will dedicate their lives to serving you, to serving the kingdom of God, take care of them. It is a biblical principle from the beginning to the end. It's there in the scriptures. It is always there in the scriptures. And even though Paul talks about it and his voluntary restriction from it, he will also enforce it in other places. He will say, you've got to take care of them. You've got to take care of them. And you are sinning if you do not. 
if you keep your preacher hungry and in raggedy clothes so that he'll be humble, you are not serving Christ faithfully. Take care of them. And I want to say this. Way to go. You're doing it. I'm not, I'm not standing up here begging for more. I'm not, I'm not going to go out and look for another job. You're doing a good job at this. Keep it up. boy. It's a joy. And I, and I think about this even this week. You've taken care of us in ways that are, that are beyond expectation, right? And the only, re- the only reason why some of you have brought blankets and meals and diapers and stuff like that is because of our role here at the church. And I, and I get that, and I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. A, a lot of it is just because of the relationship that we have from here to there. And that's, that's good, that's normal. It's not because we're close personal friends. It's not because we go way back. It's because of this role, and I think you're honoring God in doing that. And so I want to say, way to go. Way to go. Thank you. Thank you for the way you take care of us. Thank you for the way you provide for us. My, I think my kids would say that. Thank you. Thank you for taking care of Dad. Thank you for taking care of us. That's what it should be. It's the way it should work. And you're doing a good job. Keep it up. Application number two is this. We need to be compelled by the gospel. Gospel compulsion. Why do we preach? Because we have to preach. Because we can't stop preaching. And Lord, kill us if we don't preach the gospel. People who have that attitude, that genuine fire in their bones are the people through whom God changes the world. You read about great preachers in history, and they would all say that. I'll go. I'll go, and I don't care what happens. I gotta go. I gotta preach. You tell me I can't preach? I just want to preach even more. That's the way it looks. And I hope that you don't sit back and say, oh, that's for, that's for guys who are in a pulpit. That's for guys who go on a mission field. That's for guys who they write books about when they die. I hope that you will say, that's my heart too. Lord, Lord, kill me if I don't preach the gospel tomorrow at work. Lord, kill me if I don't live the gospel tomorrow at school. I've got to do it. Like Peter and John, we cannot stop speaking about the things that we have heard and seen. It's so good, I can't stop. You try to stop me, you can't. It can't be stopped. I hope that we are compelled by the gospel, and I hope that the gospel is our motivation I hope that the gospel is why we do what we do. Some of us do the right things for all the wrong reasons. And to truly honor God with our actions, we should do the right things for the right reasons. To live a certain way for the sake of the gospel. To do or not do this or that for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of our brothers and sisters. For the sake of the kingdom of God. I hope that the gospel is a compulsion for you that you can't help but preach. And I hope the gospel is your motivation in everything you do. When you get up and go to work tomorrow, I hope that you are motivated by the gospel. Motivated by the good news that has been brought to you and the desire to see it go to other people. That's what we live for, right? If you've tasted it, if you've really tasted the gospel, this will happen. This will happen. If you really know that you've been forgiven of your sins... If you really know that Christ took the wrath for you, if you really know that you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, you'll preach it. They won't be able to stop you. I hope you know it. I hope you've tasted it. If not, you can today. Call out to him today. Ask him to save you, and he will. Let's stand together and pray.
God, thank you. Thank you, thank you for a church that is faithful to the model that you have given. Thank you for the way First Baptist cares for me and my family. Thank you for them. And thank you for the gospel, the good news that has been brought to us, that has changed our lives. God, I pray that because we have tasted it, we will never stop speaking about it, that we will be compelled to go all the time. And God, I pray that as we live and as we make decisions and as we do or do not do this or that, that we will be motivated by the gospel. That we will have a mind like Paul who says, I've become a slave to all. Even though I'm free, I've become a slave to all so that I may win more. So that we will not be an impediment to the gospel. God, I pray that we will be quick to restrict our own freedoms for the good of the people around us. God, I thank you that you, in Christ, are the prime example of that. Of this self-sacrifice, this voluntary restriction for the good of others. That we will see Christ on the cross, giving himself for us, and that we will live in light and in response to that every day. God, help us. In Christ's name, amen.